dwelling in the darkest depths of the mind. It's time for Mark D. Valenti and Brain Burrow. I need this oily. I need this to lubricate the world. I need this dog to have some grease on it. Hello, everyone. This is Mark D. Valenti, and this is another episode of Brain Burrow. This is our chance to really dig deep with our guest. He has a chance to really talk about his motivation, his fears, his values, what he wants for himself. And you as a listener and viewer have a chance to say, how does this apply to me? I'm extremely pleased to have on the show today, Mr. Michael St. Michaels, and I'm going to hand it over to him by asking him the big open-ended question, who exactly is Michael St. Michaels? Uh, Michael St. Michaels is me, me, myself, and I. Uh, I'm schizophrenic, and that, uh, you know, provides really great opportunities for me to play more than one character in a film, and and I try to. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, first of all, that's a great answer. I knew you were going to be a character the moment we started having this conversation. So what does that mean for you, though, Michael? I mean, talk a bit about your characters. You've been doing this for quite some time. So, like, what motivates you to get behind the characters you get uh, you get to play on screen? Uh, most of it comes from yourself. Uh, okay. You have experiences, uh, or in some cases, I've actually had those jobs uh, for the people that I'm playing, or been in that situation one way or another, uh, and uh, keep that thought in your head. Hmm. You know, as long as you have a thought in your head, uh, you know, you might be okay. <laughs> okay. So that's a fair place to start having a thought in your head. Was there any specific character that resonated you more than others? Resonated with you more than others? Uh, well, from the Greasy Strangler, I like Jody. Uh, because I didn't know Jody existed until the day before. Hmm. So whatever happened just happened where everything else I sort of tried to think of and plan out some of it before, you know, we shot that day. Uh, I uh, did a couple of characters and things nobody ever heard of and never will. Uh, There was a thing called popcorn obstacles, which I really enjoyed. And I saw, I saw it, uh, or most of it once. And uh, I love that because it was a, a, a short shot over a few months, during which time I gained weight, I lost weight, I grew a mustache, I lost the mustache, uh, and I just drew it in on the on that one take. So, I mean, uh, that was kind of fun. Uh, and I really wish I'd seen it. <laughs> yeah. so it sounds like it was a bit chaotic but also as you said very fun and yeah uh, yeah, I mean like so like what what appealed to you about that experience uh it taught me a lesson Mm -hmm. you know I mean like I said it this was uh, a 15 or 20 minute short shot over a period of three months uh so we did very little each time we did something and 
aside from the wardrobe, that was about the only thing that didn't change on me. I, I was a film critic and uh, I was kind of, uh, you know, thinking the plot and stuff through while I was watching the movie. And then suddenly we get into this big popcorn fight. That <laughs> <laughs> certainly sounds like an interesting experience, that's for sure. Well, so let me ask you this, Michael. I mean, what motivates you to act anyway? I mean, like, what, what, why, why do you do it? Why do you act? Uh, it's about the only thing I, I think I can, uh, well, I've seen them literally dragging out people who were in no shape to be alive, really. And they were working. Uh, knowing me and my uh, lack of responsibility in many areas, including money, mm. uh, I need an occupation where they will wheel me out, <laughs> prop me up in front of the camera and pay some bills. <laughs> I mean, it's like David Niven and his last two movies. Uh, Rich, Rich Little did his voice oh. because he couldn't speak anymore. Mm. And uh, I can't remember his name. I saw him literally being wheeled onto a set to be the judge. Uh, in this scene we were doing for, I'm not sure what even anymore, it was so long ago. And uh, I was kind of shocked to see him because he was inches away from death. He was totally jaundiced. He didn't look like it on camera. Uh, they could fix that yet. Hmm. Well, it's interesting that it had such a uh, influence on your uh, decision to act. But I, I'm sitting here listening to you say this, and I refuse to believe that your only motivation is just to do the bare minimum <laughs> to do a, a career that just basically is saying, okay, it's okay just to will you out and you're able to do it. I mean, I think that you're, from what I've seen of you, you're more passionate about that. It's more passionate than doing just the bare minimum, I would say. Well, I, I try and be whatever, you know, as an actor, you're a tool of the director. Mm. And, uh, you try and be the sharpest tool in the box. Okay, <laughs> fair. You do what you can. <laughs> I mean, I've had uh, uh, just about every job there is on a, a set, except running a 35 millimeter film camera. Uh, and I was about to learn how to do that uh, when my uh, teachers, Thomas Jewett, got fired from the show. <laughs> so that was it for there. But, yeah. <laughs> Fair. Okay. Interesting. Well, let me ask you this then, Michael, if you could do anything else besides act, what would you do? I used to think I wanted to be a millionaire playboy. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I love by the way that I have no idea what you're going to say. So I think it's awesome that you're uh, kind of putting that stuff out there. So, so do tell, what do you mean? You used to want to be a millionaire <laughs> playboy. You know, I would like to be able to say I own at least one of every decent car ever built in the world. Okay. Uh, I love sailing. Uh, mm. That was one of the first things I had to give up when I got into the film business was my boat. Mm -hmm. And uh, I love music. And uh, 
I would be surrounded by a symphony and a punk band mm. if I could. Uh, uh, okay. Interesting. So talk more about that. So music obviously has an impact on you. You have an emotional connection to it. Why is music so important to you? Singing and dancing have been a part of my life since I was really little. My mother was afraid I'd get hurt playing football. Mm. So she en enrolled me in uh, ballet school. Uh, then I got singing lessons, um, guitar lessons. And I literally did spend my bus money for my guitar lessons on comic books. So, <laughs> and the teacher was getting his check, so he never said anything. And yeah, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I lost that whole train of thought. Where were we? Well, I was asking <laughs> the the, the uh, influence that music has had on your life because oh, clearly there's a connection there. I I just love singing. Uh, mm. I uh, uh, I sang in a band when I was in the army in Germany, uh, mainly for beer and. Women, uh, and uh, I've uh, used to sing acapella on street corners with other kids and when I was in New York. Mm. Uh, I like singing and dancing. It was uh, my form of exercise. Mm. And uh, for a while, I could pretty much sing like anybody out there at the time. I mean, uh, I could do Bobby Darren and Elvis. I used to win contests doing Elvis Presley. Uh, really? And you mentioned that your mother is the one that sort of got you into that. So talk to me a bit about, and this is a very classical therapy question, but tell me a bit about the relationship you had with your mother. Horrible. Horrible. Okay. Yeah, so what do you, the what last do you mean? few years without her, have been some of the best few years of my life. Interesting. Okay. Very powerful and honest statement. So do you care to talk more about that? Uh, she's a very controlling and dominating person. Mm -hmm. uh, I was uh, totally defenseless. Mm. Uh, so, you know, and then for maybe 10 or 12 years, I took care of her. Well, you know, she's a wreck of an old person. Hmm. And uh, I was just really thankful that she found a way to go somewhere else. Hmm. Because if she hadn't, I would have never been able to do the BC Strangler. I couldn't be away more than a day or two before that for 10, 12 years. Oh, wow. So that's interesting. And by the way, thank you for sharing that. So you know, having been in a situation where you feel controlled by your mother. And again, a lot of people are in situations where they look to their parents, their mother, particularly for somebody to support them. But in reality, their mother is controlling, which influences you in a negative way. And then later on having to take care of her. I mean, that must've been hard emotionally to have to kind of be motivated to be able to do that. Uh, you don't really have a choice. I mean, when you're a mama's boy, you're a mama's boy. Okay. <laughs> Fair. Just goes with it. Yeah. Fair. Well, I would say that you still have a choice in no matter what, right? We all have choices. And I think... Um, True. And, but, but go ahead, please. 
uh, that's that's one I uh, was never really able to exercise, even when I hmm. thought I had exercised it, it, it didn't work. It was still there. Hmm. Well, I mean, that must be hard, right? I mean, obviously that sounds like a lot of psychological energy taken uh, away from you as you're trying to manage that relationship. Yeah, that's true. That's why it's been great without her. <laughs> Fair. And I love that honest answer, right? A lot of people would say, oh my gosh, I can't believe you just said that about his mother. But like you actually are able to express that. And I think it's a very fair and reasonable thing to say. So I give you credit for saying that. And uh, that and how much can I get a cup of coffee at uh, Starbucks for? <laughs> right, right. Fair. <laughs> a lot. Well, and you talk about the Greasy Strangler. Obviously, that's something that you're well known about. Could you talk a bit about how that evolved, right? Because you said you almost, again, depending on what would have happened in your personal life, you may not have had a chance to even do that. But like, could you talk about how you got into that specific role? Uh, I read for something Mm -hmm. uh, that uh, uh, Jim Hoskins uh, was trying to get off the ground at the time. Uh, I got a call back and, uh, that was it, you know, a year or so later, a friend, uh, uh, Katerina Fabrique, uh, called me and said they were looking for me, Mm. uh, and, uh, they got a hold of her because, they couldn't find me apparently, and uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, but I just did a short with her, and uh, that was out there. So that's how they found me. Uh, I went up and read, and I do terrible auditions, hmm. uh, but uh, I don't know. They, uh, I just got really lucky. I. Jim liked me or saw something there and uh, used it. And I think it came out pretty good. Uh, I was appalled the first time I saw it. Uh, okay. I mean, it's just, I mean, <laughs> we were at Sundance. I was exhausted and I was dozing off and between things. And every time I wake up, I'd see something very unflattering that I was doing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> and you know i i just uh i was i don't know i remember when we were doing the q a after somebody was screaming in the background get that microphone away from him really? <laughs> <laughs> Why? but by the what? next the next screening i realized well hey uh you know in 20 years i'm gonna wish i looked that good and mm-hmm. uh yeah <laughs> Because I've seen stuff I did 30, 40 years ago. And uh, I, I honestly, a couple times, did not even recognize myself. Really? Interesting. So uh, so it's interesting, right? First of all, thank you for your very candid uh, recounting of that experience, by the way. And uh, I mean, obviously, <laughs> the film itself, you're right. There was obviously a lot of unflattering situations that you're in. Uh, but so what changed though, right? So, I mean, like what, what allowed you to be able to sort of say, okay, it is what it is. I'm going to accept that. 
So like what, what went through your mind to be able to get to that accepting point? Uh, people kept wanting to see it. They wanted me to help them. Mm. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, can't knock a winner and, uh, and it's still growing. That's the amazing part of it. Yeah. Very uh, true. I mean, when we got to, uh, South by Southwest that year, uh, people coming up to me and say, Oh, you, you, you're the guy in the greasy strangler. We, we picked your movie for our movie party. Wow. And I was pretty flattered. Uh, people like it. I, I was on a train coming through the Midwest from New York from a shoot and uh, a, a professor from some college in the Midwest uh, recognized me from that movie. Uh, they were teaching a class at USC summer school mm -hmm. using that movie. Really? Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, because <laughs> <laughs> it's got to be, and, I, and I've seen it in, you know, with groups of people now. I, I don't even know how many times, but uh, every time I did see it, I saw something I hadn't noticed before. Hmm. And uh, I mean, the, after the first screening, we, there may be a hundred people saw it, if that. Okay. Uh, a lot of them left in the beginning. Really? Uh, huh. And the next day I'm, you know, running up and down the hill at Sundance, you know, doing interviews and stuff like that, waiting to go to the bathroom. And this couple comes up and starts doing the Hootie Tootie disco dance. <laughs> um, wow. <laughs> I mean, wow. I mean, so you seem, you yeah. know, get. And, <laughs> That's never happened to me before. <laughs> right. I mean, it's very surreal, I'm sure, on some levels there. Well, I mean, and you seem like a very humble guy. I mean, just talking to you briefly here, I think you just seem like a very humble guy. So. How has the movie and the popularity of the movie, especially as you said, it keeps increasing. How has that impacted your outlook on life, basically? Uh, it's given me hope. Hope, okay. Uh, you know, it, it's, uh, it's a wonderful feeling. I, uh, you know, my 15 minutes of fame has now dragged out for five <laughs> years. Uh, <laughs> Fair, okay. And I'm all right with that. I don't get stopped at the supermarket as much uh, for people asking for autographs, but it still does happen. Uh, okay. And, and it always, it always amazes me and, uh, and frankly pleases me that people do that. Oh, it uh, does. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's out of nowhere. Mm. Somebody's having social interaction with you. And especially for the last year or so since we've been locked up and I live alone, I don't even have a cockroach left. <laughs> Just I you, basically. One, okay. But it died. Oh, no. <laughs> that's, that's tragic. Okay. <laughs> I'm about a replacement. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you, so you appreciate the social interaction when people ask you uh, for autographs and approach you because of the film. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, for any reason, actually, but the film is a good one. Okay, that's awesome. Thank yeah. you for sharing that. 
Well, let me ask you this, Michael. Um, what's next for you? I mean, not just okay. What's your next project? Like, what what do you want to do? What do you want to do with your? What do you do? What do you want to do when you grow up? Basically, what do you want to do moving forward? God, I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> okay. I do not know if I'm going to be able to move forward. Okay. Uh, if I did move at all, I would like to have a balcony so I could go outside and smoke. Uh, <laughs> okay. So we all have goals. That sounds like um, a good goal. Yeah. Okay. I'm very shallow and self-centered. So uh, it would be nice to have, you know, some good friends around. Okay. But uh, that doesn't seem to be in the cards for the moment. Hmm. I've met some very interesting people uh, and uh, formed great relationships with some of them, but they're not, you know, they're not next door. They're not, you know, I used to be a dirty hippie and we had uh, our core group of like 14, 15 people who I'm still in contact with the live ones. Uh, and, uh, and typically we could have 300 in a band in our living room for a, a party on, on any given night. Uh, and most of those people are dead also. Wow. Uh, I keep wondering what I did wrong. <laughs> <laughs> right. You survived all of that basically. So, right. <laughs> Well, I think it's interesting though, right? I mean, the whole theme of this conversation so far has been almost your desire to, to have that social interaction. You put a huge value on that. And as a human being, that makes sense to put a value on that social interaction. But what does that social interaction mean to you? Why do you find it so valuable? Uh, I really couldn't say. Hmm. It's uh, mostly been absent. Uh, hmm. I can remember moments of it here and there. Uh, when, uh, you know, there's just a connected feeling, you know, like no man is an island, he's a peninsula. Uh, that was from uh, Ronald Jefferson airplane album. <laughs> <laughs> Good connection there, yes. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I, mean I just think it's important to ground you. To, to have other people to speak, to talk to, even if you're just bullshitting. Right. Uh, it's, uh, I think it's essential for your mental health. I couldn't agree more. There's a lot of people who feel that they can do things on their own. They actually overestimate their ability to navigate on their own. And you're saying, uh, hello, we need people to ground us. And I really like that message. So thank you, Michael, for sharing that. Sure. So we're actually about out of time here. So I'm wondering, uh, you know, part of the show is about the guests giving some advice for the people listening or viewing the program. So I'm wondering if you had any specific advice about just living your life that you'd like to impart on the people that are listening or viewing to the program. Uh, well, my philosophy is rather simple. I just try not to do anything that's going to make me feel guilty. Oh. Uh, if I okay. can avoid that, I'm great. <laughs> <laughs> well i gotta ask you to dig a little bit deeper in that that's a very powerful statement to make so like what, what do you talk about that why is that important to you uh well guilt destroys you mm -hmm. and uh 
and I, uh, for a while, I was a uh, a lesson. Well, I was I was a dubious person for quite a bit of my life until I woke up to the fact that I was not only harming other people, I was harming myself. Wow. And uh, that's when I came up with this uh, giving up guilt. And the only way to give up guilt is to not do anything that can put you there. Okay. I love that. Giving up guilt. I love that to the alliteration, by the way, of the G's, but also just the way that that feels, right? It's sort of paying attention and avoiding those situations. And I think that's very powerful. So thank you for sharing your perspective on that. My pleasure. I hope it helps. Yeah. I mean, seriously, I think it does. And I think, you know, the shows are all about uh, looking for a theme. And I think you've actually brought up a lot of great themes here. One is the ability and the need to connect with other people. And two is a very powerful statement of giving up guilt. So I really think that in the short amount of time that we had, uh, you've imparted a lot of knowledge to our uh, people that may be tuning in. So thank you. Well, thank you. Sure. And I, of course, want to thank you for taking the time to even talk with me today on the show. It's been a pleasure sort of getting a little bit deeper on uh, your perspective on things, Michael. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) Fair. Well, and of course, I do want to thank the listeners and viewers out there. And on behalf of Michael St. Michael's, this is Mark D. Valenti signing off for Brainborough. Have an amazing rest of your day. You just dug deep with Mark D. Do you want more? Follow Mark on Instagram at Valenti Horror and subscribe to the Brain Burrow Podcast.